and take your Bibles, if you will, to Luke and turn to Luke 5. Luke chapter 5. I will do as I please. Those bold words may rile emotions, but we don't really believe them, do we? When somebody says that, there's usually a reason. I will do as I please. No child says to his or her parents, I will do as I please, unless there is a considerable degree of doubt in the matter. In other words, children who really do whatever they want to do don't bother themselves telling mom and dad about it. When an employee or an athlete or a performer tells a boss or coach or manager, I will do as I please, you can be pretty sure efforts will be made to assure that that doesn't happen. Even when someone in a position of power and authority says, I will do as I please, we instinctively cringe because such bold declarations seem to invite catastrophe and seldom, if ever, end in righteousness. Something will go wrong. Some unforeseen enemy will rise up. Someone will get hurt. Anyone who announces they will do whatever they please has not lived very long, or at least they have some growing up to do. Experience teaches all of us sooner or later that we lack the authority as human beings to do whatever we please. And certainly whenever we might choose to do it. Other people get in the way. Circumstances hinder us. Personal weaknesses limit us from accomplishing what we most desperately propose to do. We cannot do all that we please to do. But God can. God does whatever He pleases. And because He is a God of sovereign love and a God of sovereign holiness, one thing that God routinely pleases to do is to rescue people. Broken, fallen, rejected, ugly people against all expectation, against all odds. Against all opposition, God just keeps picking people up who seek His aid. God does whatever He pleases. And one way God routinely pleases to exercise His sovereign authority is by rescuing sinners who suffer the ravages of sin and turn to Him for aid. This truth is a major theme that emerges from the Gospel of Luke as he recounts the life of Jesus Christ and seeks to help us understand who Jesus really is. Remember, as we come today to Luke 5 and verse 12, that Luke is summarizing Jesus' Galilean ministry, a tour in northern Israel where Jesus publicly demonstrates who he was in both word and deed. Before us this morning, we have two narratives. In each, Jesus will choose to heal a man who desperately seeks Christ's help. And in each of these healing accounts, Jesus demonstrates his authoritative power to do whatever he pleases. 
And as Jesus so acts, he demonstrates his sovereign authority over much more than the physical health of people. We'll note that as we go through. Do you know the Jesus we find revealed in these two accounts? We start with the account of Jesus and his healing of the leper. Verse 12 of Luke 5. Verse 12, when Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. He was in one of the towns, that is in Galilee. This man is covered with leprosy, or the Greek term is full of leprosy. He suffered an advanced state of this disease. Now, leprosy, we're not very familiar with it here in our day. We have looked forward to in the following month of November to have a man who had leprosy come and to speak to us, uh, Brother Shambhu Day from India. We know some people who have leprosy, but very few in our day. We're not very familiar with it at all here in the United States, but there are those who live with this disease every day. We do need to understand that there is a little bit of a difference from with leprosy in the t- biblical times and today. In biblical times, the term leper or leprosy covered a wide range of skin diseases. Today, we have narrowed the term to refer to what is called Hansen's disease, and that is a disease that numbs the nerves, and you're probably aware of, of how it sort of wears away the body as people can't feel, and so they touch something hot and burn themselves and never feel it. Uh, there are even accounts from third world countries where, where rats will gnaw on people's legs in the middle of the night and they never know it. They don't even wake up. It's a horrifying disease. We don't know if this man has that particular form of leprosy or not, but we do know that in Bible times it was a dreaded disease. Leprosy was our cancer. Leprosy was our AIDS. There was no real cure to many of its forms, though sometimes people would uh, be healed. That is, they would come back to health. No one really knew why. Again, we would see these skin diseases as, as being different things, but the, uh, in the biblical world, they referred to it all as leprosy. In whatever form we find it, this man is a leper. And so there are some things that we can know about him. We also note that he was full of leprosy. He was covered with it. This would indicate some very specific things to us. He's in advanced stages of leprosy, and this was a disease among all of its hideous features that was highly contagious. And so leprosy was not only deadly, but it was in some respects referred to as a living death. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 13 and verse 45. In a day prior to modern medicine, God even in his word for the protection of his people laid out some very specific guidelines for lepers and they were not enjoyable. Leviticus chapter 13 and verse 45. Put yourself in the place of the leper and know that he lives in a society under this divine law. Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46. Leviticus 13, 45. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkept, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. Now, living alone, there would be, it, was, uh, it was appropriate for lepers to join together in colonies outside of uh, civilization. 
but you can see this would consign one to a horrifying life, a horrifying world. They are isolated. In order to keep them from spreading the disease, this might seem cruel to us in our world and with its modern conveniences, but it was a loving act to those who were around because, again, it was highly contagious. And as we might suspect, the rabbis always took the Old Testament law and notched it up several steps, so they always added their own opinions to what this should mean. And they came to determine that it was illegal to greet a leper. Not only did they need to live in isolation, as was stipulated by the law, but the rabbis, the Pharisees in particular, said you cannot even say hello to a leper. They were afraid that that might lead to some type of contact. Lepers were required to stay 150 feet upwind from others and at least 6 feet away if downwind from others. In other words, a leper could not be greeted or touched by any healthy person. Imagine that. Leprosy thus rendered one a physical and a social outcast. Lepers could not work. There was no way for them to gain employment. They had to live off of the donations of others, sometimes thrown at them from a distance, at other times left at a place, and then people would leave and the leper would come in and take the food and the supplies that were left, perhaps by relatives. This was the world to which they were consigned. Now combined, I mean, combine this together in your own mind. The, very, the physical ugliness of this disease. It's a skin disease that made people look just horrifying and it ate away at the flesh. There were lesions and there were swollen spots. It was very hard to stomach looking at someone with leprosy in advanced stages. And you put that together with Israel's history in which God did in fact use leprosy at times as punishment. We think of Miriam in Numbers 12, we think of Gehazi in 2 Kings 5 and of Isaiah in 2 Chronicles 26, all of whom were punished by God specifically with leprosy. It was not hard then for the Jews to connect the dotted lines between leprosy and divine punishment. Now that was not the case in God's mind often. And God made that very clear on numerous occasions, that sin is Death and disease is part of our fallen, sinful world. It is not always a necessarily a direct punishment against an individual for specific sin. But the religious authorities in Israel at this time did not make that distinction and often, if not entirely, connected someone who is in this horrible state must be under divine punishment. It reminds me of the story of Shambhudeh who received that same treatment from the Hindu village in which he lived. You must be punished by the gods or you would not have leprosy. And it's a long, wonderful story, but he was brought to believers who talked to him about a God who loves. Now this is the same God in the Old Testament. He loves the leper. And Jesus will demonstrate that, but they were horrible outcasts. It was a horrible disease, a horrible situation and it was associated with the uncleanness of sin. It was seen as almost a visible demonstration of the ugliness of sin. Now with all of that understood, helping us in the context a little bit, the middle of verse 12 says, When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Perhaps as he approached Jesus, he is with torn clothes, and he is unkept, and he is... Uh, yelling out, unclean, unclean. And you can almost imagine the people retreating as he approaches. 
Jesus and Jesus holding his ground in accordance with the law. But notice this request. Notice what he says. Did you catch that in verse 12? He fell down with his face to the ground, begging Jesus, Lord, if you are willing. You see that word? If you are willing. He does not say, Jesus, if you can heal me, will you? But he says, if you are willing, you can. He believes that Jesus has the power. The only issue is, does he want to? Will he be willing to do so? Jesus responds in verse 13. He reached out his hand and touched the man. Now that should just about bring chills to us. He touched the leper. This man's in advanced stages of leprosy. Do you know how long it's been since he's been touched by a whole person? Jesus reaches out his hand, and the Greek text would indicate that he, it is a firm hold on this man, perhaps on his shoulders. He puts his hand upon him, or maybe on his head. He touches him. And he says, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. Jesus can't do that. You understand what is being said here? You can't do that. You can't touch a leper. Jesus, in this moment, violates in the view of those who surrounded him, he violates the Mosaic law. He touches an unclean person. To touch a leper was a violation of rabbinic law. It would have rendered Jesus ceremonially unclean. But Jesus did as he pleased. And the result was not catastrophe. It was glory. For as we see there in verse 13, he was immediately healed there was no cure for advanced leprosy in Jesus' day. The man was dying, but Jesus was not bound by circumstances or by disease. He healed the man immediately, completely, miraculously. Then he instructs the man in verse 14. Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. We see, first of all, uh, in, in this instruction, we see a command to secrecy. Jesus probably does not want to attract a crowd. What is his goal? 443, his goal is to go through all the villages, to let everybody know of the gospel, to let everyone know that he is the Son of Man, that he has come from God and he has come to save. That is his goal and his intention. If the word goes out too widely that he is here, the crowds will come and will surround him and he will not be able to proclaim the gospel. There's something more important to Jesus than healing everyone who has sickness. The point of his healing, in fact, is much larger than simply healing, as we will see demonstrated through this text. Jesus needs to get around and to proclaim the gospel, to teach who he is, and that will solve a problem much deeper than physical ailment. And so apparently for that reason, he tells the man, don't go around and tell everyone. Now there's all kinds of goofy ideas and theories as to why he says this that we can pretty much discard. That he's somehow trying to hide that he's the Messiah. He's doing a pretty poor job of it at this point if he's trying to hide that he's the Messiah. I think the point again is he just doesn't want the crowd to hinder the mission at the moment. What does he tell the man to do? 
Not only does he command him to secrecy, but he says, go offer the sacrifices before the priest, offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Now this goes right over our head in our culture and our setting. But in that day, it would have been very clear what Jesus was commanding him. If we would go to Leviticus 13 and 14, we don't have the time to read through those two chapters today here in this setting. But there was an elaborate eight-day ceremony that was to be undertaken by anyone who was cleansed of leprosy. Now generally, that was a skin disease that we would not call leprosy, and it ran its course, and they came to a place of cleanness. But you, can you imagine this person who is now cleansed of leprosy? And this ceremony was very carefully orchestrated to bring them back into society. It involved the killing of a bird in an uh, earthen uh, vessel, the blood would be collected in that vessel. A second bird would be put, dipped into the blood and then ceremonially released by the uh, person who'd been cleansed. And woven through these eight days, there's symbolic washings and shavings and anointings with blood and with oil. So in the end, the entirely shaved, washing man stands in a, as a newborn baby before God. There's no hair on the body, completely cleansed, and with all of this ritual going around these seven days, now on this eighth day, a sacrifice is offered, and the individual is brought back into the community. So by ordering this man to visit the priest, Jesus breaks the Mosaic law. Jesus obeys the Mosaic law. He does as he pleases. He relates to the Mosaic law as God. Man cannot touch another leper, but Jesus can. But once touched and once healed, Jesus honors the Mosaic stipulations as to bringing this man back into society. Now why does he send them there? At least in Jesus' terminology, certainly it is to obey the law. But notice at the end of verse 14 he says, as a testimony to them. He wants them to see what has happened as a testimony to them. Leprosy, remember, is incurable. Jesus is sort of scooting this man along and saying, now go to the priest because I want them to consider what has happened here. Jesus knows that for his messianic claims to be received by the nation, for him to be the king of Israel, the religious establishment is going to have to come to terms with who he is. And so in this miracle, as well as in the next, he is purposefully orchestrating circumstances so that his messianic, uh, uh, who he is as Messiah, is, is seen and is witnessed. This healing was going to get attention of the right people at the right time. Well, we can hope that the leper went to the priest, but Mark reminds us he certainly did not listen to Jesus on the rest of the account, and he went off everywhere telling everybody about what Jesus had done. I suppose if there is a way to disobey God, that's about the best way you can possibly do it. He's going around telling everybody, I'm healed. I mean, this is a man who's had to yell unclean, unclean every time he's seen anyone. And now he's able to yell out, I have been healed. And he tells them about Jesus. Well, you can imagine what happens. Verse 15, the news about him spread and all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. The response is widespread and enthusiastic. 
And Jesus is overwhelmed with people seeking His words of life and His healing touch. And so we read, in contrast to what we might expect, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now that's a sermon in itself. And we don't have time to look at it very deeply here, but amazingly, at the very time, now think about this. There are commentators who say it's amazing that Jesus does not use the opportunity to elevate himself. That misses the whole point. That's all what Jesus' ministry is all about, is to elevate himself. He is who he is. If you had the cure for cancer, your job would be to elevate yourself. And if you went off to a, a cabin up in the north and hid somewhere, when you had the cure for all cancers, that would not be loving and wise. Jesus is promoting himself. The point, I think, that is really the case here, what is so amazing about this, is that this is the very time when he can promote God. When he can let people know who he is. All of the crowds are assembling, and in the midst of all of this, Jesus gets alone. No matter how busy he was, no matter the demand of his ministry, no matter the opportunity that was set before him, Jesus prioritized time alone with God. He had the authority from heaven to do as he pleased. And to be stopped by nothing. But Jesus always made sure that whatever pleased him was exactly what pleased his Father. So in isolation, Jesus humbly sought the Father's fellowship, insight, and empowering strength. Here's a sermon in one phrase, and we have to move on. Busyness is never the real reason why we don't pray. So let's summarize quickly. A desperate, dying man approaches Jesus for help, and Jesus is pleased to heal him. In his pleasure, Jesus is not hindered by the Mosaic law. He touches the unclean man, yet he honors the law, commanding him to go back to to, uh, seek ritual cleansing. Jesus fulfills the law. He provides the healing power so that the ceremony can be used. This healing is a demonstration of Jesus' unique authority. How will the nation respond? Will Jesus' prayers... While Jesus prays, rather, and submits himself to the Father's guidance, his enemies are working. The leaders of Israel are reacting to this great popularity. So as we come to verse 17, we find another day in which he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law. We've seen the healing of the leper, and now there's a healing of a paralytic. He was teaching the Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. Now what in the world's happening here? This is a whole different thing in the book of Luke to this point. Obviously Jesus is gaining attention far and wide. And there are Pharisees, one of four major major religious sects in Israel, and the individuals who popularized the law which being interpreted is, made it almost impossible for anybody to follow. But that was their job, was to take the law and tell everybody how they were to apply the Mosaic law. These leaders in Israel are now showing up in northern Galilee, 
making this long trek even from Jerusalem to hear this unconnected rabbi. He's unconnected. Remember, all of the brightest Jewish boys would be sent on to study rabbinical literature and to memorize the scriptures and to sit under the great rabbis at Jerusalem. Jesus missed that track. Here's this northern Galilean hick up there that no one in Jerusalem wants to tolerate, but they can't help it. The word about Jesus is spreading everywhere, and so they're making the journey, all of these religious leaders and the teachers of the law as well, who were scribes, they were the ones who wrote down the interpretations of the law as it applied to various situations, and who many of whom were Pharisees, and so interpreted the law in a Pharisaic, from a Pharisaic perspective. Well, they're gathered now in large numbers before Jesus, coming from Jerusalem, Judea, and from, of course, Galilee, and they're coming to hear him, and they're sitting there before him. So we have a sizable number of them at Jesus' feet. There's a lot at stake here. The air had to be highly charged with anticipation. One has written, They form here, these leaders, a broad-based investigative committee, united in its eagerness to find something wrong with this young rabbi. Well, they are up against more than they know because not only is their presence there in this house where Jesus is, but notice the middle of verse 17, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. In one sense, Jesus could always heal whomever he chose. Yet this phrase balances that idea with the realization that Jesus was entirely dependent upon the Father for his healing powers. This phrase also indicates that there were times when Jesus did not make his power, or God, the Father did not make his, his power available to the Son. But this is not one of those times. Here is the presence of the Spirit and the power's authority rides, rests with Jesus and he has the power to heal. So here he is teaching about the kingdom of God. And some of the greatest minds of Israel gather around, hanging on every word, and there's a disturbance at the door of this house. Verse 18, we read, Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house and to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. You can give me just a, another minute to try to fill us into the culture and the situation. The Israeli homes were two boxes, one on top of the other. The top one was smaller. That was the upper room. It was a flat roof. And... The stairways were almost always on the outside of the building. So here are these men coming to the front door, and they're carrying this, this mat, what we would call stretcher, four of them carrying this man who's paralyzed. They can't get this big bulky thing into the house because of the press of the crowd around Jesus. And so what do they do? Very naturally, they just go around. The only place they can access him that they can think of is somehow through the roof. They go around to the outside of the building, and obviously the stairs are wide open. Nobody's out there because you can't hear Jesus teaching there. So they go up the stairs onto this flat roof. And the roofs of that time would have been beams over the mud walls or stone walls, and in between those beams, they would, they would cover the beams either with, with uh, tile, uh, hard-baked clay, or sometimes they would stuff it with, with uh, reeds and a bramble and things like that, and then mud it over. And the mud was usually about a foot thick. They'd, they'd smash it down and roll it. So here they're standing on there, which formed a, a nice floor on which the upper room rested, and, and a, 
balcony of sorts that you could walk on. Here they are, about seven feet up in the air. The ceilings and inside generally were about six feet high. So here they are, about seven, eight feet with all that roof above Jesus. They're right over his head. They put their friend down, and they begin to dig. Uh, it's not impossible at all that they somehow begin to break through the hard earth and dig away, or if it is clay tiles, and there's some debate as to what's intended here, but they just are removing those tiles and there comes the light streaming in right over top of Jesus' head. And you know, as the story goes, they lower him down there, verse 19, on his mat, through the tiles, into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Again, you see the people sort of scrambling out of the way and drop the man right there in Jesus' lap, so to speak. How's that for persistence? These guys believe that Jesus could heal their friend, their relative, their loved one, whoever it is. They're undeterred by the crowd that presses upon Jesus and they move right into the room, dropping him through the ceiling. Jesus responds in verse 20, and this is amazing. You've got to see the shock value here. Verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. So here's this man lowered down right at his feet. He's paralyzed, obviously there to be healed, and Jesus blows everybody out of the water and says, your sins are forgiven. Now what is that? This has not been what Jesus has said before. When people come to be healed, remember as we looked at it last week, if they came to Capernaum, every single person that was sick he healed. There were no exceptions. Here he doesn't heal the man, he says your sins are forgiven. Where does that come from? Jesus is beginning to move. This is, if you, if you correlate it to chess or a game like that, he's taken a piece and he's moved it in a very strategic place. He starts with this, your sins are forgiven. Now remember who's sitting in front of Jesus. This is in the crowds. These are the teachers of the law. These are the official religious leaders of Israel and they are there to test if Jesus is legitimate. And they're hoping against all hope that he's not. They're looking for a way to pin him down and to show him to be a hoax. But here they are listening to this and he goes right at the heart of the matter and says, your sins are forgiven. Verse 21, they react. Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's exactly what Jesus wanted them to think. Exactly. They're right. No one can forgive sins but God, and he wants them to consider that truth very carefully. They conclude falsely that he has thus committed blasphemy. He's defiled the holy name of God. It's a serious charge, a capital offense, punishable by stoning in that setting. He's blasphemed their reasoning among themselves, or thinking among themselves. Jesus, verse 22, knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Is it, it's, I think, pretty clear what he's saying. You can say somebody's sins are forgiven, but you cannot really test it. But if I say to this man who's paralyzed here, has been paralyzed apparently for a long time, a lot of anxious people to see him healed, 
If I can raise him up, that will confirm that what I said about forgiven sin is to be taken seriously. So verse 24, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now Jesus has performed many wonderful miracles to this point in time. But there's much more to it than just the miracle. Jesus forces the religious authorities before him to come to terms with who he really is. How does he refer to himself here? Again, this doesn't hit us surprisingly at all. My guess is that didn't even register a bleep on anybody's mind right there. He called himself the Son of Man. That was as shocking to these people as when he said, your sins are forgiven. The Son of Man conjures up reminders of Daniel chapter 7. It is a claim of deity. Now, I would say, I would admit that it's subtle at this point in time. But this gets their attention, that the Son of Man has authority. What, get what Jesus is saying. I'm not here performing miracles simply to help people out. I'm doing that. He had compassion on that leper. He has had compassion on many other people. I am performing miracles to show you that I am who I say that I am. That's the purpose of the miracle. That you may know, he says to the man, take up your mat and go home. And he does, verse 25. He stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. We notice again that the healing is immediate, complete, and unimpeachable. Now, the critics, the Jesus Seminar and the Channel 2 gurus that talk about all of these things, they have the advantage of 2,000 years of time for people to forget things. But the one fact that we do know about the ministry of Jesus Christ, I, I, I'm sorry, I should fill in a couple blanks there. The Jesus Seminar and those, uh, the, the liberal critics of Scripture are always saying that Jesus never claimed to be God, he never performed any miracles, this is just what his his followers conjured up after he was gone. Well, you can say that when you're 2,000 years removed and there's nobody out there to speak against that. But the fact that continues to persist through even the secular, pagan, Roman, and the Jewish historians of Jesus' time, no one said that these things didn't happen. The historians... Those who watched his critics knew that miracles were being performed. There's no one that argues that point. Now, Jesus is called all kinds of things, a sorcerer, a magician, a huckster, and all types of things like that, but no one argued that he was doing miracles. And if we would go back in this time, it's very clear that the enemies of Christ never did deny that he performed a genuine miracle. It didn't work because these people had been paralyzed for life, had been blind for life and the like, and no one could argue. What a beautiful scene this is, though, to get past all the critics. What a beautiful scene. Here goes the man walking out of that house. Oh, I'd love to be there to see him. Somebody suggested he danced down the street as people clapped. I don't know. 
But as Bengal put it, the couch had borne the man, and now the man was bearing the couch. And that's the way it is when Jesus touches your life. Everything's different. He knew his legs were freed of their bondage. He also had this sense in his heart that his sins had been forgiven. And I think that second was much more liberating than the first. crowd again responds to Jesus' miracle. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. So do you see how these two accounts go together? Just as Jesus demonstrated his authority with respect to the law in healing the leper, so he demonstrates his authority with respect to sin in healing the paralytic. Jesus does as he pleases. He holds sovereign authority over the law and over sin. And there were two happy men to prove it. Let's take a deep breath. Give me a couple more minutes. As we draw the connection between us further in this passage. First of all, this miracle marks a turning point in Christ's ministry. We need to see that as we understand Luke. He carefully establishes that his healing power bears witness to his authority to forgive sin, which only God can do. And this demonstration leaves no place for fence-sitting. Jesus did what he did through the power of God, or he did what he did through some other power. And that's precisely where these authorities are being forced, to that split in the road. They're going to have to decide one way or the other. There is tremendous foreshadowing here. These authorities conclude that he is a blasphemer. It will only be a short step to conclude that the power that Jesus is accessing to perform these miracles is Satan. So in our understanding of the book, that's a very important point, to see this turn here at this place. My miracles show that I am who I say that I am. Secondly, I think we need to focus on the relationship between human freedom and divine sovereign authority. On the one hand, we must avoid an overemphasis on the human side of the equation. There are those who are seeking Jesus today, and certainly in different terms. We don't come to him physically. We don't come to him with diseases necessarily. But there are those who are seeking Jesus this day And say things like this, I will come to Jesus if I want. And I will come to Jesus when I want to come. I will do as I please in meeting Jesus. To which I say, no you won't. That's not the whole picture. It's not just up to you to do what you please. There's more to it than that. If you can't locate Christ in your heart, you can't locate Him in saving faith, there's more to it than just that you have not chosen to. There's a sovereign work which He must please to do. Now on the other side of that, we can go far afield and do just as wrongly. On the opposite side of this coin is a view of God's sovereignty which views us as a passive game piece that God just moves around when he's ready to. 
We see the beautiful blend here in a passage such as this. God works through human action and will. Now, think about what Jesus is doing here. Why does he operate this way? Why did Jesus not just come down to earth in this golden chariot and set up this kingdom that everyone could see, just explode on the scene so that no one could have any doubts at all. He is here as a man. He's here as a human being just like everyone else, and he is explaining to them and illustrating to them that he is God. But he doesn't do so by exploding on the scene. Why is that? Jesus is carefully, and as God always works, drawing out a response on the part of those who see him. His sovereign act always meshes with human will. There is human freedom and there is divine sovereignty that work together for good. Now, bringing that to these two men and bringing that to us, who is it that God pleases to help? Who is it that he reaches out to? Who is it that Jesus heals? He heals those who come humbly before him and say, I need you. Now that's not to say by saying that that they manipulate the hand of God. That's going too far. But it is to say that the people that God chooses to help are those who reach out to him in humility and say, I cannot help myself. I would differ with that common line, God helps those who help themselves. I would put it, God helps those who realize they can't help themselves and must have his help. It's no different for us than it was for these men. We might come to Jesus for different reasons, on different terms. We may not come necessarily for the healing of the physical Christ before us, who's already demonstrated that He's God, but we do come before Him for the very thing that this man received, the forgiveness of sin. There's only one way to approach Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, and that is humbly to know there is nothing that you can do. And that is energetically to do everything that you can to put yourself at His mercy before His feet. If it means cutting a hole in the roof, then you cut a hole in the roof. You get before Jesus. You come with a broken spirit. And as you do, the same forgiveness of sins that He gave to the paralytic is the forgiveness that He will give to you. Yes, He is sovereign and will give salvation and forgiveness to whom He will, to whom He pleases. But we must understand that Jesus loves to exercise His sovereign grace toward those who want Him. If you seek Him, if you seek Me, says the Lord, you will find Me if you search for Me with all your heart. Now that searching comes from Him, but that searching, make no mistake, comes from you. We must actively come before Him, fall on our face, and seek Him. Our God does what He pleases. And one thing that He pleases is to give abundant grace and mercy to those who seek Him. Do you know Jesus in that way? Is that the Jesus that you know? 
Christ of sovereign authority who meets you in your weakness and your abject spiritual poverty and heals your sin. That's the Jesus who came to this earth. That's the Jesus who lives today. And that is the Jesus that we can attest lives today because there has been a weight of sin that has been removed from our soul. And so we gather to sing. Do you know that Jesus? He's there. Seek him and find him. Let's pray. I'm reminded, Father, of your word which says that it is through the foolishness of the message preached that we come to saving faith. Oh, Father God, I know these miracle stories and the whole life of Jesus are so irrational from a human standpoint. And yet you've come to confirm to us in our hearts we're so real. As Peter wrote, these were not fancily devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his glory. God, there's no faith in us to believe such stories. There's no faith in us to experience sins truly forgiven. But we plead with you to provide the faith and the insight and the strength that we might seek you with all of our heart and cling to you and drop on our knees before the sovereign Christ and receive from him the forgiveness of sin. God, how I thank you for that cleansing power of Christ's forgiving sin. Cleanse us, we pray now, Lord, as we turn to you in song and in prayer. And may we rejoice with who Jesus is and all that you have provided for us in him. In his name we pray. Amen. Please.